Now, if you've spent any amount of time listening to me preach over the last few years, you know that I'm not averse to sharing with you stories uh, that are somewhat self-deprecating, that paint me not in the best light. Uh, but this morning, I want to open with a, a real-life illustration that is entirely embarrassing for me to share. In fact, it, I have great reluctance to share it as I see some of the young people among us here today. My daughter's here. Uh, some teenagers are here. I don't want you to hear what I'm about to share. So part of me wants to say, cover your ears or set your watch for five minutes and come back in. But no, this is a very embarrassing story. But uh, I, I share it with you now because I think it will help serve the text that we are looking to examine today. And so the story, I don't even know when it happened, but I know where it happened and with whom it happened. My friend-in-law Ralph was with me and we were, we were driving home from somewhere. I don't know where. And you know how it is sometimes on, on East Bay Street. Sometimes there are people driving very, very slowly. You think that they're like bird watching while they're driving in their car. And, and I, I was trying to navigate around some of these very slow drivers. And so I sped up a little bit. And I'm turning the corner around, you know, where East Villa is and Bahamas Realty. And I wasn't going... I didn't think I was going that fast, but I was evidently going fast enough to get the attention of a police officer who was holding a radar gun and who had recorded on his device that I was going over the legal limit. So you know how the rest of the story goes. They flag you over and I pulled in to one of the laws and it's a very embarrassing thing. Here it is, the pastor of the curb uh, breaking the law and being caught breaking the law. And, and I share this with you in embarrassment because I did break the law. I, I wasn't doing a, a Mario Andretti impression. I wasn't uh, going dangerously fast, but I was breaking the law. I was exceeding the speed limit. So, so as you imagine how this thing goes, my, my father-in-law is keeping quiet. He doesn't want to aggravate the situation. And the police officer explains to me, you know, what I did wrong. And he writes me out a ticket and off we go. So I'm at home and, and I'm looking at this ticket. And, and it's, not like the, it's not like the one or two tickets I might have gotten in Canada. I may or may not have gotten in Canada. Um, this ticket was different. It, the information on it was ambiguous, and it just wasn't clear exactly what I was to do. It was clear how much the fine was, and it was clear what my speed was on the day of the offense, but it wasn't clear what I was to do with this thing. There was no address telling me where to go or who to speak with or who to pay this fine to. So, well, being a person who works in the community, you know, I'd gotten to know uh, numerous police officers in a few stations, so I went into a police station uh, nearby, and I, and I won't name the inspector, I said, Inspector, um, I got this ticket here, and, and it's not clear what I'm supposed to do or where I'm supposed to go. And he immediately took the ticket out of my hand, and he says, you do a lot of work in our community. We don't know what we'd do without you. I'm going to go cancel this ticket right away. You never mind where you're supposed to pay. You're not paying this. I'm, I'm taking this and I'm going to get this ticket canceled for you. Well, why do I share that story with you? Is the moral of the story? Make sure you're a pastor so they let you off the hook? No. That's, why do I share this story with you? I have a great concern that many, many people imagine that God is going to deal in the same way with them. 
I worry that there are many people who imagine that when they die, and when they approach God with their offenses in hand, that God's going to look at them and say, Oh, I know you were working hard. You put in a good effort. You always tried your best. You are a good person. You tried to help others. Give me those offenses. I'm going to tear them up. They're canceled. I think there are a lot of people out there who imagine that they will gain entry into heaven based on their personal merit. They imagine that the things that they have done will present to God a compelling case to let them in. But if forgiveness could be achieved in that manner, the cross of Jesus Christ would be totally unnecessary. Think this through. If there was something you and I could do, if there were a certain way for us to live that could merit forgiveness, that could merit God's approval, then there would be absolutely no need for this cross business. But of course, the cross was necessary. The cross of Christ is evidence that we lacked, and we lack the necessary personal merit to get into heaven. Well, on Good Friday, we often focus on the outward details of the crucifixion. The things that led to the steps which led to him carrying the cross, which led... We focus on the outward details of what happened that day. And that's because this is the way the gospel authors present the material to us. But when we get into the epistles of Paul, we see that Paul goes further with this information. Paul connects for us what happened on the cross and what's supposed to happen in us. Paul connects what Jesus did with the implications for our life. To anyone who's ever asked the question, what does the cross of Jesus Christ mean for me? Paul's epistles give an answer. Well, our story actually begins in the book of Genesis. It is in the book of Genesis where we learn that every human being has a sin problem. We learn about Adam and Eve given a very simple and straightforward commandment not to eat the fruit that would give them the knowledge of good and evil, to have all these other trees and fruits and resources at their disposal, but stay away from this one tree. They, they couldn't do it. They disobeyed. And we read on in Genesis, and chapter after chapter, it's a litany of disobedience from God's people. And there's, there's a reset or a rebooting of, of the human race with Noah's Ark. Because of the wickedness, the pervasive wickedness of man. But even the reboot was of no good. The remainder of the Old Testament shows us an outline of God's interim strategy to deal with our pervasive sin. 
A covenant is made with Abraham and his ancestors. Laws are given to Moses to share with the people. A sacrificial system is set up to help people recognize and deal with the sins that they were committing. Priests and prophets were assigned roles to enforce the laws and to to administrate the, the sacrifices that needed to be made. Nevertheless, the sin problem continues. The law wasn't making anyone righteous. The law wasn't making anyone as righteous as they needed to be. And the sacrificial system, the blood of animals, we learn in Hebrews, the blood of animals really wasn't taking away the sins. It was a foreshadow of something else. But the actual sacrificing of animals wasn't accomplishing anything. So the sin remains. And we needed something better. We needed a new covenant. We needed a new sacrifice. We needed Jesus. It was John Calvin who explained it well. Why Jesus was fully man and fully God. Because only as man could he represent us. Just as Adam's sin was our sin. Adam represented us as any federal representative would represent us. Adam represented us in his sin. We needed someone to represent us in righteousness. And only as a human being could Jesus fulfill that role as our representative. But only as God could he meet the standard. This is why we needed Jesus to be fully like one of us. So he could represent us, stand in for us. But only as God could he meet that perfect standard. So the word that I think best describes what Jesus did on the cross is the word substitution. Substitution. And we don't have slides up today. This sermon came together rather late. This is what happens when I have three in a week. I don't know what to do with myself. I end up just scribbling all kinds of notes like a mad person and hope some of it makes sense. So there are no slides, but if you're taking notes, or if you only want to write one word, write this word. Substitution. Substitution, in my mind, and in many theologians' mind, is the best word that summarizes what happened on the cross. Jesus was our substitute that day. He was our substitute in at least two very significant ways. First, he was our substitute in righteousness. Sorry, I I got nervous when I heard the police sirens there. I just had a bit of a flashback. Alright, he wasn't coming for me, we'll keep going. Jesus was our substitute in righteousness. And maybe you've heard me say this before. I use this in confirmation classes all the time. Imagine yourself a student. You're a student and you have a professor who's very strict. This professor insists on the highest standard. And the professor has put an exam in front of you that you can't possibly pass. You know, your parents are looking for you to get an A on this test, but you're looking at this exam and you're not sure you're going to get any kind of grade. This exam is just too difficult for you. 
So what we could do is do the best we can. We hand the exam in. Our name is on the exam. And the inevitable happens. We fail. Because the professor is strict. And the exam is tough. And we weren't equipped to pass it. But imagine this. Imagine the professor came to you. Just as you had started the exam. And said, listen. Put your name in the top corner. But I'm going to write the exam for you. I'm going to write the exam for you. I know all the answers. I'm going to fill it in. But you get to put your name on the exam. Of course, it sounds like a ridiculous thing. No one here is going to say, you know, my professor did that for me way back when. No, that never happens. But that's what happened on the cross. That may not happen in real classrooms. But it happened on the cross. Jesus lived his life as if he were writing the exam of life on our behalf. We kept on failing time and time again. No amount of laws, no amount of tutors, no amount of prophets were going to help us to pass this test. We needed someone to write the exam on our behalf. And that's why Jesus doesn't immediately go to the cross. That's why he spends 30 some years on this earth. Because he's writing the exam of righteousness. He's leading a life without sin. And we learn from Paul that that perfect life gets credited to us. That we get to put our name on the exam that Christ wrote. And on the account of what Christ did, we are declared righteous. Jesus was our substitute in righteousness. Secondly, Jesus was our substitute by standing in our place and taking the penalty and the punishment that we deserved. He's our substitute because he didn't deserve the cross. We did. We should have got that penalty. We should have got that punishment. But we're spared from that. Because he was our substitute. He stood in our place. I want to go back to my opening illustration. And as I go back to my opening illustration, I'm going to change some of the details of the story. So for anyone who's who's come in since the opening illustration, the opening illustration was fact. And what I'm about to say is fiction. But there's a purpose to my fiction. So instead of being pulled over for speeding, which is the true account, imagine that I'm accosted, if you will, by a police officer because I've seriously injured someone with my car. I was driving recklessly. And as a result of my reckless driving, I seriously injured another human being. On the spot, immediately, my license is taken away. I later learn the size of the fine that I'm being assigned for reckless driving and harming another human being. The fine is huge. It's more than I could possibly pay on my own. So I go to the police station. I do some community work. I go to the police station where I know a few of the officers... And I share with the inspector with great regret what I've done. And in the course of sharing with this inspector what I had done, he informs me that 
the individual that I seriously harmed with my vehicle was his father. And that there's no way that he could just take this ticket and cancel it. Someone has been harmed by my offense. Someone has been harmed by my recklessness. And the reason I changed the elements of that story is because we need to see that our sin is deeply personal to God. This is not a fun fact. But the Bible indicates that our sin is deeply personal to God. Our sin is not the spiritual equivalent of speeding. Our sin is not the spiritual equivalent of loitering. Our sin is a serious affront to a holy God. And the debt we must pay is more than any of us can afford. So God does an amazing thing. He does an awesome thing. God pays the debt. Our offense is against Him. And He pays the debt. Now I suppose, at least hypothetically, God could have just canceled the ticket. He could have said, yes, it's personal what you've done. Yes, it's a huge deal what you've done. At least hypothetically, he could have waved his arm and he could have just said, yes, you're forgiven. It's a big deal. I know it's personal, but you're forgiven. He could have done that. But that's not what a holy God does. That's not what a just God does. A just God insists that the debt be paid. And so we come to 2 Corinthians 4, 5 rather. Paul says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When you look in the mirror, do you say, oh, you look very righteous? We don't think of ourselves in this way because we have some sense that we're sinners. We have some sense of what's wrong with us. But God paid for that. He paid for that on the cross. God made Jesus sin so that we can be righteous, so that we can be the righteousness of God. Paul concludes saying, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. It's possible that you've believed in Jesus as the Son of God for a very long time. If I were to take a survey here today, you might tell me, I believe that Jesus was God's Son since I was a young child, since I was a teenager. Many years, some of you would say you believed in Jesus as the Son of God. 
It's possible that as you sit here in church today, you could say to me, Bryn, I've been attending church my whole life. I've been attending this church my whole life. I can barely remember a week. I can barely remember a Sunday where I wasn't in church. But perhaps, perhaps you imagined that in some small way, you might earn God's favor. That there's something you've done, or a variety of things you've done. Maybe some of you, in spite of your upbringing, in spite of your orthodox belief in who Jesus is, in spite of all of this, some of you might be holding out thinking, I've done some good stuff. And I'm counting on God forgiving me. I'm counting on Him canceling the ticket because I've done some good things. The cross of Christ is meant to convey a very different message. And the message is this. We can't do it. We can't do it. We can't get God's favor by anything we would do. We can only get God's favor because of what He has already done. Someone said that religion is about doing. And understanding that, they've said Christianity is not a religion in the strict sense of the phrase. Because if you're a Buddhist, if you're a Muslim, if you're a Jew, there's a to-do list. And you've got boxes to check, you've got rungs on the ladder to climb. It's a religion of doing. Christianity stands apart from every world religion. As the one religion that looks at all of the prospects in the eye and says, you can't do it. None of you can. The work that is required has already been done. It was done by Jesus in his earthly life. It was done by Jesus on the cross. In our day-to-day living, we've come to learn that it's often in our best interests to get credit for certain things. To claim credit for certain things. We've learned that if we get credit for certain things, it improves our standing in a variety of ways. If, if we can be known to have given something or done something or achieved something, then that can help us establish new relationships. It can help us play the network game if we can be known to have done some things and to have achieved some things. If, if, we've, if we get the credit, good things can happen. It can happen in the workplace. That's generally how promotions work, right? You do some good things and people notice. You go the extra mile and you catch the boss's eye. You get credit for troubleshooting certain problems. And the boss gives you a promotion. If we get credit, it can even help our marriage. I've tried it a little bit myself. You know, sometimes foolishly, I'll, I'll say to Allie, I took out the garbage today. And after having done a thousand and one things herself, she kind of gives me the so what look. But, but it's, it's a natural thing. I, I unloaded the dishwasher. Whoopie-doo. When was the last time you did that? It's a natural tendency to want to say, hey, I did this. Look at what I did. Look at what I made. 
Look at what I achieved. It helps us in this life. Well, the Christian life is so different. Because one of the unusual and potentially unattractive aspects of Christianity, and maybe this accounts for why this church isn't full and all the churches on this island aren't full, maybe it's because there are a bunch of people out there who really want the credit. And that there are pulpits in this world where individuals stand and say only Jesus gets the credit. No human being is going to take credit. As the hymn puts it, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Today, we give Jesus Christ the credit he deserves. All to him I owe. Today, my friends, Good Friday. Today is the day of salvation. Thanks be to God. Amen.